You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And today, Neil, I'd like to chat about the difference between models and algorithms. I feel like these things get conflated a lot, but they're pretty distinct. Oh, I don't know if they're distinct for everyone, and I guess what people think about them depends on their perspective. But I think in machine learning, people will talk a lot about models, but in the wider society, you tend to hear a lot about algorithms or the algorithms. Algorithms are doing things to us. And <laughs> I think that the interesting thing is the way that maybe also the public perceives that what that term means versus what we think of it, well, what I used to think we thought of it before I tried to understand what the public thought about it and, and what model is. So, so maybe let's start by trying to come up with a picture of what we might think of in machine learning as or what I think of as the difference between a model and an algorithm. I'd like to actually base things around a principal component analysis, which I think is most widely thought of as an algorithm. So principal component analysis is commonly described as an algorithm for finding the directions of maximum variance in your data. That's a common way it's introduced. But it's a very interesting model slash algorithm because it actually has several different models underpinning the same algorithm. So what do I mean by that? Well, the term principal component analysis was first used by Hotelling in the 1930s at a time where people were interested in something called factor analysis. So factor analysis is perhaps most famously underpinning things like IQ. So you ask a number of questions from someone, they give you answers, and you try and explain these quality of these answers by a reduced number of factors. So, so the true data is your actual answers to all these questions, but you sort of try and compress it to say, well, your intelligence is this. Or another thing might be these sort of Myers-Briggs personality measures where you measure on extrovert versus introvert. And mm. in social sciences, these were very sort of big around that period where people are sort of trying to say, what are the latent traits is, is another term people have used for that. And Hotelling looked at these models and uh, he was, a, I think he was more of a mathematician than a social scientist. And he said, well, I don't like the term factor analysis, but I, I like this idea and I'm going to call it principal component analysis. And he said, well, what we might describe data as being is some unseen set of latent traits, which might be, I don't know, whatever your IQ, your personality, and then some mapping from those traits to a high dimensional observation we see. And, and he proposed what we would say is an affine transformation, um, a linear transformation, a matrix multiplication. And he said, okay, under certain conditions, I can then describe the following model, which was the principal component analysis model, I would say, which turned out to be what we would think of as a degenerate low-rank Gaussian model today, to describe it technically. And, and very interestingly, th th this work was followed up by Sam Rowais and uh, Mike Tipping and Chris Bishop and others in, in the mid-1990s in the machine learning community, where it was revisited as probabilistic principal component analysis. And to me, it's very much a model, because you're sort of saying, well, the data I observe is generated by actually sort of Gaussian distributed unobserved variables. When I say Gaussian distributed, a zero mean unit covariance, and then it's transformed in this linear way from the low dimensional space to a higher dimensional space, giving it what we call a low rank or a low dimensional structure. But interestingly, that's not the way PCA is typically taught. And PCA itself is often credited to Pearson, a very famous statistician in 1901, actually looked at the problem of he was interested in, in a regression problem. So he, I, th I think he famously looked at issues around regression to the mean, which is where the term regression comes from. But one of the things he was interested in is, let's say I'm trying to predict variable Y from variable X. And the sort of problem Galton, uh, who was a mentor to Pearson, was interested in is how we try and predict the heights of children given parents. So that's the famous regression to the mean problem that tall parents tend to have children that are slightly shorter than them and short parents have children that are slightly taller than them. That's the regression to the mean effect that they identified. That's why there's this odd name for regression, which is totally a weird name, but it comes from the fact that, that you apply linear regression and there's a regression to the mean effect. Anyway, sidetrack. But what Pearson then sort of pointed out is that if I, I typically fit regression models, I have some input, which we might call X to some target Y. And he said, but if I, if I try and predict the other way, if I pr try and predict X given Y, I get a different model. So it's not symmetric. And Pearson said, well, I'd like an algorithm or a model that is symmetric. 
And so he, I think this paper is 1901. It's often credited as PCA. And it turns out that the solution to his problem was the solution to Hertelling's problem as well. Now, this fascinates me because these are two very different sort of setups. Maybe there's some commonality there. Maybe they do map to the same thing. Well, they do mathematically, algorithmically. And the answer to both is compute the eigen decomposition of the sample covariance of your data. And those become your so-called principal components. Or it becomes your direction regression in the Pearson case. Now, but I would say that's an algorithm in, in itself. An eigenvalue decomposition is an algorithm which relies on other algorithms, such as QR decomposition. So on and so forth. There's algorithms within algorithms within algorithms. But conceptually, at the level we work at in machine learning, I would describe the algorithm to students as compute your sample base covariance and then do the eigenvalue decomposition of it and manipulate the eigenvalues and eigenvectors in particular ways. But that's sort of different from what I would say is the model, which is this conception that I gave for hoteling, where there's this idea of there's some latent traits. Or he didn't like the term factors, which is why he invented the term principal component analysis, because he said, oh, these aren't mathematical factors. But ironically, the way they appear in the end solution is as a factorization of the covariance. The eigenvalue decomposition is a factorization. So it's a shame he invented this new term. But anyway, there we have it. Principal components, he called them. And then people have named sort of every model that has the same algorithm as principal component analysis. But it's fascinating because the underlying models that lead to these algorithms, this same algorithm, are very often very different. Now, you might think, well, well what's the point? So what? Well, it gets very, very interesting when you non-linearize these algorithms. So remember I said Hotelling was talking about the linear case, so linear mapping from these latent traits to the higher dimensional space. And also Pearson was interested in the case where you were doing linear regression between two variables. Now, if in either of these cases you say, no, I want to go non-linear, your algorithm doesn't look the same anymore. It's just in the linear case that they map to the same algorithm. In the nonlinear case, if you try and non-linearize the PCA algorithm, you can get kernel principal component analysis, principal curves. You can get a number of different algorithms that all look totally different. And that is why I think the difference between model and algorithm becomes very important because you sort of the algorithm you get is dependent on what you were trying to do. Now the two things are also important for different reasons because in your model, you tend to try and encode your assumptions about the data. And so often what we think of as a model is an abstraction of the problem. I mean, I think that's my favorite description. I mean, I don't know if it applies for all variants of models. Like toy cars are sort of models. They're sort of, hmm. in some sense, abstractions of a real car. They're, they're a sort of, they don't have real engines and you can't put shopping in them. But, you know, you can sort of, they, 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 they take some particular characteristics of a real car and represent it at scale. That's a scale model. And indeed, scale models are used for testing the aerodynamics of cars for, say, Formula One or, or things like that. But, you know, in the Formula One scale model, you, you don't put the engine in the scale model because you're only interested in the abstraction that is the aerodynamics. And, and so that's the sense in which I think model is useful that when you're modeling data, you make a typically a mathematical abstraction of your problem. So it's not always mathematical. It could be a computational model, but it typically is a mathematical abstraction. And then we derive the algorithm from that mathematical abstraction. The algorithm, I think, is very often concerned with things like how can I do it efficiently? How can I do it at scale for very large data? How can I do it in a distributed way? So, you know, the mathematical model is typically if it's more complex that becomes harder to do if it's sort of simpler that may become easier to do so ideally i think we should have this world where we describe our models which is our abstraction of the universe that we feel is appropriate and then we write down an algorithm to try and derive that and domains like probabilistic programming are really trying to make that explicit they're trying to say well let's just write down the probabilistic model and then let's have the computer take care of the algorithm in practice, it can be difficult to scale that. And in practice, some of the models that work the best are where there's a pleasant conflation of model and algorithm, where things, it's not just the model's good, but actually you can deploy it efficiently at large scale, and it tends to lead to good generalization capabilities. And I think that's really hard to achieve when you totally separate these two ideas. 
And I think that this is one of the challenges of machine learning is that often we want to express what we understand about the world in an elegant mathematical way, and then we try and do that, but then algorithmically we can't really deploy what we've done at scale or in a memory-efficient way, so we end up making compromises in our model. Now, neural networks seem to be in this very happy place where there's this nice conflation of model and algorithm, particularly stochastic gradient descent, a particular algorithm for optimizing a neural network, where I'd say a neural network as a prediction function is a model. But the two live very happily together and seem to work well at very large scale on very big data. And I, I don't think when you're, you're building these things in the first place, it's going to be obvious that that's going to be the case. So you sometimes get these hidden gems when the two conflate together. And that neural networks, very complex model, very difficult to understand mathematically, but very simple algorithms, which mean that you can scale well and they've got sort of good complexity and memory storage effects. So I, I sort of think this is you know, a real challenge in machine learning, that you sort of want to design these wonderful things. Like if you didn't have neural networks, you wanted to create them from scratch. But it's very hard to develop the right abstraction of the world alongside the right algorithm that everything's going to work out. And the most successful methods, like PCA, it's a lovely algorithm underpinning an interesting model. And that's why I think it's more successful in factor analysis, because this eigenvalue decomposition is more elegant than the factor analysis algorithms, where there's a few different ones, but they're typically iterative. I also said that right at the beginning that there's a public conception of what the algorithm is, and I think that that's a different thing again. I think public sort of sees the algorithm as the end result of this entire process, as just what's being done to them, not how things are being fitted. So that the public will think of an algorithm underpinning Facebook's news ranking algorithm. You know, your news feed is ranked in a certain way, and the public conceptually thinks of that as an algorithm, which that algorithm itself is going to be the conflation of however the Facebook engineers and scientists chose to build their model. They then would have themselves had an algorithm for fitting that model. And then you combine all those things together and you're making output predictions that that whole process is somehow seen as the sort of the algorithm, that somehow the algorithm takes my data and the data of others and combines it together and gives an output. And I think that when you're talking, doing public communication, it's important to remember that separation. And also with other fields like social sciences. In the social sciences today, people will talk about the algorithm. And of course, there's this slightly weird effect that a social scientist once mentioned to me, that is, you know, as if people conceive that Mark Zuckerberg sits there right typing the algorithm into a computer or something like that, that decides what the news feed ranking is. Which, of course, isn't true because it's a combination of data and, and the, the modeling choices of the engineers and, and how they've chosen to fit that model that, that leads to that end result. So it's more complex than just coding up an algorithm. But I think a lot of the public think of it as like people in large companies just code those algorithms. And I don't know, I, I find it helpful to make the separation but I also find it dangerous to believe that you can think purely in these separate ways, that in the end, when you're being practical, you actually have to bring everything back together and combine the model you use with an understanding of the algorithms to make it practical. To have the entire system function, you have to be constantly thinking of it holistically and not just breaking it down into its component parts. Yeah, I think that's that's a really nice way of thinking about it. Uh, but at the same time, one of the best scientists and engineers are really good at breaking systems down into component parts. And I think that this is one of the weird games you end up playing, because if you get taught formally, then we might say, well, as people do, also, we, we talked about Bayesian inference, separate the model from the decision, which is a different separation, right? Because that doesn't say anything about the algorithm to fitting the model. And you, but at the same time, if you just totally do that and ignore the practical consequences of your modeling, you're just going to end up with impossible algorithms. So yes, any big challenge needs to be decomposed. But if you don't think about it holistically, and holistic's a really nice word in that context, then I think you're not going to get a practical solution. And that really is, is like the art to being successful in these spaces, is weighting all these things. And, and it's hard to teach. A lot of it comes with experience, actually. And that's why working with data is so important and, and, and trying things out, you know, whether it's toy data or, or Kaggle problems or whatever, is so important in developing this intuition. For more on models and algorithms, you can visit our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on talking machines is about summer schools. 
I attended Lorenzo Rosasco's Reg ML summer school this year, and it was phenomenal. Would it be worthwhile to look into attending the GP summer school next year? Is it worth attending again, or should I diversify? What other in-person training programs would you recommend? So, Neil, is there something to be said for going and having these learning experiences in person, in a group, or does Coursera serve you as well? That's a great question. Well, these things are probably very person to person. First of all, I mean, I think Lorenzo's been putting together this summer school, and Lorenzo's based in Genoa. I don't know if it's this one. I know he runs summer schools in Genoa near the Cinque Terre. That's a beautiful part of the world to go and do summer schools and meet new people. You know, some of my longest friendships have been from people I met at summer schools. And you know, I even met my wife at a summer school. So there's something to be said for being You're in person. You're biased, Neil. There's bias. <laughs> Maybe in the modern world, you can meet people on Coursera. Yeah, that would be an interesting. We'll have to check that with Daphne if anyone's met and married on Coursera. <laughs> but, you know, there, there is no real substitute for getting together with people who are perhaps at a similar stage and a slightly different background and discussing ideas. One challenge with, with teaching at the cutting edge ideas is you have to typically have experts to do the teaching and it's it called the curse of expertise experts are mm. often too steeped in their knowledge to communicate well i think that a big challenge as you move to grad school is from undergraduate is undergraduate teaching is mainly understood like what size chunks students can consume and so there's sort of an expectation that sort of everything you get fed you eat whereas i think when you're at grad school, you know, some people will just flow a massive buffet into front of you and say, well, you need to eat all that. And if you don't, you're an idiot. And, you know, <laughs> there must be some people who manage to do it all. But I think that this is one reason why grad school is so intimidating. And summer schools, you get thrown into, and, and of course, grad schools, if you're doing graduate courses, particularly in the States, they're very good at this. You get thrown into an environment where there's other people who are having the same experience but probably mm -hmm. have consumed different parts of the buffet and can tell you what they taste like so you, you can together feel that you ate the whole thing. Now, I haven't attended the RAGML one, but I know that it's very popular. The Gaussian Process Summer School is an excellent summer school. That's one mm. we uh, mm -hmm. have run for a number of years in Sheffield, so I would thoroughly recommend that. But, <laughs> but we're not too many people because it actually it only runs up to about sort of 50 or 60 people. We try and keep it small because there's a lot of lab classes and we find mm. that a lot of the good learning goes on in the lab classes where people do things in practice. As the summer school gets larger, let's say the machine learning summer school, I think it becomes a bit of a different experience. That, that one will typically last for two weeks and you get amazing experts coming in and teaching cutting edge topics. But it's probably fair to say the the amount of time they'll typically have, which may be six hours per topic. So if I was doing MLSS, I might teach GPs in six hours. It's difficult to believe that people at the end of that um, are going to have all the skill sets to immediately deploy what they've learned. It's more like a sort of guided tour. So so would you suggest if, if I am at the graduate school buffet and I've been eating from mainly like the Italian section of the buffet, I've been doing a lot of Gaussian processes or whatever, and I want to move over to maybe the probabilistic programming side of the buffet, would it be worth going to one of these summer schools that's maybe more focused on an area that I want a cursory tour of to dive into more? Is that what I should expect? Well, I think MLSS things? is a really good starting point for an overview of the buffet. And then you sort of like, oh, and I really like Italian. I'm going to go for, well, you know, I haven't even been to a deep learning summer school, right? Or the deep reinforcement learning one that I think was just in California. But mm -hmm. I kind of get the sense that they're like a Billy Graham convention like in a vast stadium with thousands of people i think there was one in spain that thousands of people had it now that's got to wow. be a different experience again so mlss restricts numbers and and there's a sort of selection process gpss we don't have a selection process the gaussian process summer school i don't know how lorenzo runs RAGML, but we basically the numbers kind of work out but we do a first come first serve and we certainly used to try and run it more regularly if we felt there was higher demand. With the deep learning, the demand is so massive. I mean, if you look at deep learning, just to look at the NIPS numbers in terms of the demand for attendance there, they've been going up thousands of people per year. And certainly when I used to idly talk to new people at NIPS, even as far back as when it was Utah in, um, oh, I can't remember the name of Sierra Nevada, the Lake Tahoe, 
I remember people sort of saying, well, this is really way too much technical material for us newcomers, uh, speaking to people who are from one of the search engine companies, not Google, but were coming to their first NIPs sort of like four or five years ago. And that was before the big expansion. And a lot of people are seeing value in the deep learning material. So there's a massive demand to sort of do anything associated with that, whether it's the software, whether it's the summer schools. And so I think they've had some very big summer schools. I think the deep RL one was number restricted and quite expensive, mm. actually, whereas the MLSS has typically been uh, sort of cheaper. The experience is going to be very different. I, I can't quite see how if you're at a summer school with so many people, you get that sort of you must meet people with common interests, but it must be really hard to communicate ideas as widely or as a diverse a set. To, I mean, you're really focusing on a, a, a part of the buffet. And I think that's something that's interesting that's happening in machine learning now is people are so interested in those techniques that it's like one variety of food is super successful and everyone's forgetting about all the others for a period. <laughs> and that's probably okay because it is successful and it's being deployed. But we know there will be crossover, just as in cuisine, it's the same in machine learning. I think all summer schools are good, I mean, broadly speaking. If, if there's a good reputation, there's good people there. I mean, certainly personal recommendations will help, but people you've seen give talks online who you know give talks are there, or people who are known experts. Coursera is, is of course, excellent, but that's more of the structured bite-sized course, I believe. And it's great to do those courses before attending those summer schools. I think the best schools, or what I really hope in my own teaching I try and do is, well, I hope I try and do it, I try to do it, and I hope I succeed, is to try and teach at multiple levels. So the worrying thing when you're teaching these audiences is there's diversity of expertise in the class. There's some people who are doing research in your area and are the PhD students of, you know, close colleagues of yours who probably understand better about some aspect than you do. And there's other people in, say, an MLSS who have absolutely sort of no interest up until now in what you're talking about. You know, they want to do deep learning and you're talking about Gaussian processes. And, you know, the art is kind of that they both leave with something to take away. And I always sort of think it's akin to sort of, say, a good kid's movie. I mean, any parent who's had to sit through a bad kid's movie with their kids, the kid loves it, you know. But uh, there's some movies that there's just nothing there for a parent to enjoy. But the, the best kids' movies work at multiple levels. There's cultural references at one level, and at another level, there's an elephant that flies with big ears, which, you know, kids love. So good teaching works like that. And so there was, I think part of the question was whether one should revisit. And yes, if it's well taught, it's like watching a good movie again and again. You will see different aspects each time you watch. Um, you know, not everyone teaches well. So perhaps look for speakers whose work you admire and are interested in who are going to be attending these things. Yeah. Look for a number of students that you feel like you would get to meet some people and you might get some personal attention from the people who are helping you to learn concepts. Yeah. And definitely consider going back to ones that maybe you have gone to before because if they're good, you're going to find something new to really dive into. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's better to go and do something diverse. But if you get the opportunity, you know, like my own students would attend the Jousting Process Summer School multiple times. They tend to be demonstrators, you know, after mm. they've attended mm -hmm. the first time. They enjoy meeting people, actually. And also, there's, you can go to some pretty cool places. Not that that should be your main consideration. <laughs> but, wow, it was so cool. We taught MLSS in Arequipa last year. And the students love that. What an amazing place it was. And I think, you know, that caused a lot of bonding between the students, which is really important, too. But, yes, all those things. If you've got a question for Talking Machines or would like one of the Graduate School Buffet t-shirts that we're going to start printing, <laughs> you, can, you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Dr. John Quinn. He's a data scientist at the United Nations Global Pulse Lab in Kampala, Uganda, and at the Makerere University, he's also part of the Artificial Intelligence Research Group. And when we got a chance to sit down with him, we asked the first question that we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? Well, I guess in terms of where, where I found myself, this kind of data in Africa, I mean, I began working in machine learning in about 2002, and this was in physiological monitoring of infants in intensive care. And I, I took a job in Edinburgh as a research assistant in a very forward-looking neonatal intensive care unit where they were hiring research programmers to, uh, to try and do number crunching on their accumulated data, which was quite substantial. 
Uh, that developed into a PhD, so I, I did a PhD in the University of Edinburgh, and this was looking at machine learning applications, so time series models, and how can we predict things and understand what's going on from sequences of, of physiological data to, to help uh, with the, the management of, of babies in intensive care. And following that, I developed along the way a, a notion that it would be interesting to work in an African university after doing my PhD. And I envisaged this as being an interesting kind of postdoctoral experience. You know, I thought maybe I'd go find somewhere, teach uh, algorithms to undergraduates or something for a year or two, and then go back to the European postdoc experience, normal kind of thing. It took me some time to find a job in Makerere University in Uganda, and this was a result of looking for countries which were nice to live in and had functional universities which were interested in recruiting computer science faculty. Uh, it turns out the intersection of those two things is, is quite small and basically was Makerere University. So that's where I went. Uh, so I showed up there in 2007 and this was pretty much the week after signing off my, my PhD corrections. I was uh, on the plane to Uganda. And at first I didn't have a clear idea of the amount of research opportunity that there is uh, in Uganda and by extension Africa and much of the developing world. And it really took a year or two for me to to realize the the opportunities there. And uh, it was probably 2009, 2010 that it was, you know, after two or three years in Uganda that it was starting to occur to me that really the things I'd done before might find some application. So with a, a, a very dedicated and hardworking set of postgraduate students, I was really lucky to get some good Ugandan PhD and master's students who uh, started looking at things like agriculture and medical diagnosis and various applications of, of these kind of methods that we're all familiar with and started getting some interesting results, which were, which were quite new. The research group which I founded gradually kind of built up and eventually the UN opened a lab in Kampala as well, a data science unit, which I joined about three years ago and I've been the technical lead of ever since. And so that takes us to you know, where basically I am now, which is having some of these ideas which were maybe on the experimental side before and now we're really trying to deploy them at, at scale, which is kind of the same stuff but a, a sort of more operational flavor of what we were doing. So that's basically the story so far. UN Global Pulse coming in. Um has had a tremendous effect in, in a really good way on top, building on top of the groundwork you put in McCary. But how, how has that changed for you day to day? We've talked a little bit about the access to data it gives, so that's one practical thing. But um... Yeah, that's true. I mean, that was a challenge we were having in McCary University, that to open the doors within government and UN, people who might be users of these kinds of things, there's, there's a resistance, you know, and it, it does help to open the door, having, having that affiliation. Also, the UN's quite good at deploying things at scale in general, doing things in a big, a big way. That's, that's helpful to be in that kind of setting when you have a prototype and you want to really do it. Certainly, there are constraints as well. There are particular things of focus. And so there's a particular scope of Global Pulse, for example, that is really monitoring what's going on with nations or populations. And some of the things we've been doing aren't really all that well relevant to, to Global Pulse, for example. So some things have stayed in McCary. Going back to that, so the mission, as I remember you describing it to me, is to be a bit more proactive about responding to disaster, natural or human-induced, to try and get a sense of the pulse of the globe and where to deploy resources. Yeah, exactly. So it, it would be inferences about whole populations, you know, what's going on with food security or biodiversity or that kind of thing. Yeah. So one of my favourite projects... Partially because, um, actually, Shira talked about his mental toolkit when we were talking to him. I like that idea, the mental toolkit. Because it, because it dips into so many places of your mental toolkit and your interests is um, the uh, radio uh, monitoring project, which is very much a global pulse project. I mean, if you could tell us. Yeah, sure, that, sure. So this has come from a, a desire to hear more from the people affected by issues and the, the beneficiaries of, of UN programs and that kind of thing, really to hear from them what, how things are going, you know, and what the, what the needs are, that kind of stuff. There's been a period of looking at things like social media, which is interesting, but from a very narrow demographic, and uh, radio is really where it's at in terms of discussing issues. In how many person. radio stations are there in Uganda? 200-ish. Yeah. yeah, as far as we know. <laughs> and and uh, how many languages are spoken across those radio stations? Well, that's a good question, and it depends partly how you define language. Uh, so there's many languages or dialects. There's two main language groups, Nilotic and Bantu, and so we've, we've trained speech recognition models for one of each, and that should make it easy to, to more languages. Uh, there are a number of languages. That's certainly one of the substantial 
technical challenges of radio monitoring. The project also involves, you've deployed Raspberry Pis in different regions. Obviously, you have to have physical devices in the regions where the radio is there. And you actually record the radio signals constantly and you attempt to do speech recognition on, and this is, broadly speaking, on phone-in shows, right? Yeah, that's the interesting stuff. That's the, the voices of the people where people talk with the intention of communicating publicly what's going on, you know, what their experiences are, their concerns and perceptions and so on. Yes, we have to deploy these Raspberry Pi units. We'll use UN field stations for that uh, because you need power and you need internet and you need both of those to be stable. And that's really not an easy thing, even in a UN field station. So we've had endless problems with power spikes blowing up our equipment and and all sorts of stuff and outages of various sorts and, you know, you, you name it. So, but basically that's exactly it. So we deploy in physically around the country. We've got five physical installations now and they record these Raspberry Pi boxes. On the Raspberry Pi, there's some basic processing. So they look for where's the speech, particularly where's the phone speech, and filters out the music and, and that kind of stuff. That then gets uploaded where we can do some detection of the topics which are of interest to humanitarian interest. So I have to, what's great is there's a website, isn't there, where some of these stories from, that you've picked up, you can hear the original Bantu or whatever the language is, and then you, you get the transcription, and it's often an issue with the local hospital. or what was One was like the made the patients sweep the hospital. That's right, bad deal, yeah. We're made to clean the compound before they would be administered to in hospital, yeah. Uh, that's right, there's a few examples, yeah, radio.unglobalpulse.net, and uh, there's a few things, yeah, for example, it's stuff like roads being down, you know, we can't travel from this place to this other place because the road's been washed away in a storm, healthcare things. We did have a particular focus on natural disaster and what the effects of that are, particularly small-scale natural disasters, and we found that whereas the, the disaster response agencies are very good at understanding large-scale things. If there's a flood which affects 10,000 people, that's catalogued and assessed within hours. People are on the road, you know, and uh, uh, that's a very efficient process. But if there's a thousand small-scale things which affect tens of people, that's not well understood. And that's the kind of thing people talk about on radio, really interestingly. So there's a few of those examples of that kind of stuff which can change the disaster risk profile of a country. My understanding of the way you're operating, I mean, so Uganda also, I I think I remember you telling me that there's less use of social media there than there is perhaps in Kenya, so there's one reason why radio is particularly important. But is this a project that can also spread to other countries? Is that the longer-term idea? Is this where the UN scaling comes in? That's the longer-term idea, yeah. I think we're really in this proof-of-concept stage in Uganda at the moment. We are having some actionable you know, insights coming from this program, but we need to work out, is it cost-effective? I mean, it's pretty difficult. There's lots of, if you have to train a speech recognition model each time, that limits its, its scalability. Is it worth it? Are there more efficient ways to do it in terms of the way that you collect training data, maybe use crowdsourcing or something? So in terms of the quality of the information and the alternative sources, which might be easier than deploying hardware to some place and training complicated models and, and trying to do stuff, you know, maybe for some other things, just read the newspapers or uh, mm. uh, perhaps there are other sources which are, which are easier. So we have to really establish that kind of cost effectiveness. And, and then if that works out, then sure, advocate for that to be used. I mean, then that cultural variation, even within relatively neighboring countries within Africa, is actually quite an important factor in a lot of the success of these things. I mean, in terms of, uh, in fact, I was was discussing with Esther the extent to which people in Tanzania listen to podcasts versus Kenya. And I think that this is where it's so important to have people who understand local culture and what's going to work, because there's this tendency to broad brushstroke everything, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the specific cultural details are, are really what makes or breaks a project. That has made a tremendous impression on me because of the nature of the data you're pulling together is the sort of people movement combined with disease data. And in particular, I don't recall it. You couldn't attend a conference I invited you to once. I don't recall if there was an outbreak at that time and you were monitoring it. But but tell us a bit more. I think it's the typhoid outbreak or maybe the outbreak was before. That's right. There was a typhoid outbreak which started in Kampala in early 2015. And Pulse Lab Kampala was on the national task force for typhoid at the time. So... uh, we were involved in the, the, the crisis meetings in the ministry, which were very informative and are basically are meetings where people bring all their different types of evidence and try to figure out what's going on. Uh, and the great thing about that situation, I mean, obviously it's a terrible situation, and it's better if it doesn't exist, but in terms of new methods of analytics, 
people are very open to stuff because uh, people are comparing things, even if they're quite anecdotal pieces of evidence or opinion about the interpretation of different data points which have been collected. So we came in as Global Pulse to to assist with that effort, mainly by visualizing, actually. So there's a lot of data in different forms. It's pretty mucky. It has to be, you have to reference which places people are discussing and map them in a, in a nice way. And that was, I think, one of our major contributions. But uh, as you referred to, Neil, indeed, it gave us a chance to look at an idea which has been circulated in this, this domain for a while of can you take the movement of the population and use that to project what's going to happen with the spread of infectious disease. If lots of people are moving from an infected area to an uninfected area, then that puts this infectious pressure on the, the non-infected area. So interesting stuff. Happily for Ugandans, unhappily for our analysis, the typhoid outbreak didn't spread far beyond Kampala, and you really need quite a wide-scale epidemic to be able to test these things. So some of the strongest results have come from other teams, for example, in Haiti, where there was a cholera outbreak, which really covered the whole of Haiti. So then you have enough data to be able to test a model like that quite rigorously. And was that the model that you developed in Kampala? No, they, they developed that independently. It was a group called Flowminder who, who did some nice work there. Yeah. Um, but um, it characterizes what I think is probably your core tenet, which um, I find very inspiring, which is, you've mentioned it in talks before, high-tech solutions for low-tech problems. Yeah, that's right. Like, there's, you know, there's this idea that we should have appropriate technology, in quotation marks, whatever that means, and, and that tends to mean very simple innovations or interventions of various sorts. Not to say that often they don't work, but there's no reason that they can't be high-tech, and sometimes that's the right tool for the job. And I think what's been very satisfying to me about our research group in Makara University is to equip people with those tools. So we have this new generation of researchers who are equipped with these methods. You know, if they understand well the fundamentals of machine learning and analytics and visualization and, and so on, then they can go forth understanding these things and apply their high-tech understanding to these problems, which are indeed often low-tech. And I think that, to me, it's influenced me very heavily. And one of the ways it's influenced me is to also think about how you can help and how one can intervene. And, and the first thing I tend to view it as is not helping, but just finding the applications really cool. So the thing I really think I'd like to emphasize is that the solutions you're deploying are absolutely cutting edge. I mean, and I have enough experience to know that they're cutting edge. And you deploy them faster than other people are able to. Principally, I think, because there's a lack of existing infrastructure. For example, the people movement thing. I, I kind of find it impossible to envisage that happening in the UK currently with, let's say, the foot and mouth outbreak. Maybe there's tools for that because it's animals. But, you know, the, the speed at which you've deployed these things, you know, I think there's enormous amounts we can learn in the UK and the US about how to do this stuff. Well, thanks, Neil. Coming from you, that's a huge morale boost. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there are obstacles and opportunities here. And I think that's the thing to try and harness the latter and uh, dodge the former. But uh, indeed, you know, where there is a situation uh, which isn't quite as cut and dried as public health or agricultural epidemiology in the, in the UK, you know, then there are opportunities to, to innovate, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've, with many of our interviews for Data Science Africa, we've, we've spoken to people about, I mean, it's the amplification of the issues as well that when you're looking at the health of the cow, you're actually looking at the health of the cow owner because people are often in the situation where if something goes wrong with the cow, then you know, things go wrong for them and so on and so forth. Everything's sort of amplified, which I think is also means it's a very motivating place to do things. But one of the other characteristics you have, which uh, I always admire and try to learn from, is your patience, your patience to deliver on these things. I mean, when you came, you sort of said two years after you arrived, you started to realize that maybe you could do research. How did your research vision come about? Did you foresee this or did you just sort of get passionate about delivering on those applications and this is what happened? Yeah, that's an interesting question, which I don't think I have a very clear understanding of myself. I think it happened after a year or two just because of being sufficiently familiar with the context. Uh, everything's quite new and overwhelming uh, to begin with. And I think the longer I've been here, year after year, I, I realize more about the environment and also realize how little I know. And um, coincidence that by that time, I'd been training people in machine learning, or kind of the, sort of the basics thereof. And they were, I think, starting to help me understand what those things could be useful for. And I think I definitely think a lot, a lot of the successes such as we've had have been because of this team. You know, it's been about training people who are themselves from that culture and understand 
what it is. So, you know, I, I don't see myself much more as a kind of facilitator, really. I mean, uh, you know, the ideas and the driving force comes from the people who actually actually do the work. That just resonates with all good research. It's that it, it has to work in that way. And the, this effect you mentioned about as you go on realizing how little you understand. <laughs> I think that, that a lot of the people I respect the most have that same feeling. You start out thinking you, you've got on top of something, and then as time goes on, you really go, well, no, I really don't understand how to do that. But facilitating the team and the quality of the team are one of the things that I love about Data Science Africa, and you, know, you guys are the exemplar in this, is the personal connections and, and the way you deploy. We've talked with several people about the challenges with Ernest, about getting adoptions of systems with farming community, and then at the other hand, getting adoption with these visualizations with the decision makers, as you've talked about. And so much of that is reliant on Exactly, having people on the ground. I mean, my one concern has always been when I sort of first came is like, well, there's John there sort of doing that Macare, but if that disappears, then we've just lost like an enormous number of years of built-up work. I feel we're getting a bit beyond that at the moment. What's your thoughts on that? One thing I was quite encouraged by was when I shifted my, my centre of mass from Macare University to the UN, to UN Global Pulse, the research group carried on yeah. going, and that was significant and not something I was taking for granted at oh, all. Oh, absolutely, and Ernest yeah. has done a tremendous yeah, exactly. job there. Exactly. And, and in fact, that's exactly what you want to see happening. Uh, exactly, yeah, I mean, that was really good. And I think in practice, a lot of, the, a lot of this stuff is being done by the Ugandan team, you know, it's not... Yeah, so behind to behind, that's what I'm, my worry now is, though, if you get political instability in, uh, you know, there are elections, if the university shuts down, then, then we're, we're vulnerable for that. You know, we're no longer reliant on... So I shouldn't have said John in Uganda. We're reliant in, in what you've been involved in building along with Martin and Ernest and everyone else. And I think, for me, that's what the Data Science Africa mission's primary objective is, is that sort of, I don't know, spreading the love in, in some sense... Spread the love, exactly, yeah. No, you're, you're quite right. I mean, it is really dependent on a small number of individuals at the moment who are kind of carrying the torch, and, you know, you never know what the future holds. So, right, if we can build up enough people that really just becomes unstoppable, then that's, that's the way forward. But, but quite right, I mean, it's early days in many ways, you know, really, uh, despite having been plugging away at this for the best part of a decade. I mean, a lot of it is effectively still at this kind of proof-of-concept stage. A lot of the ideas are kind of still sort of nebulous and we're starting to have some proof of concept but you know, there's a long way to go and uh, yeah, yeah it's funny isn't it because you get to that stage you sort of 10 years in thinking well I should have done something so far but actually all I see <laughs> is the things I have to do but I think that that's the scale at which you start thinking I think you you what happens is you're successful on the small things you set yourself these little targets oh I want to get a publication on this oh I want to get involved in that and then when you're successful you don't go okay right I'll stop then or I'll do that again you just say okay well now I want to oh but wait there's a problem with this I mean is, is that your feeling as well? Yeah I guess there's a kind of mission creep where uh, you know there's the, the never ending list of things to do you know one thing is this kind of getting things working for real being really difficult and there's such a big journey between doing something as a proof of concept, you know, writing the paper, getting the benchmark code or something, and then actually having something deployed. So things like the radio project or uh, things to do with Ernest Crop stuff has, has really brought that home. And a lot of this is work which is really hard and lengthy, but doesn't really fit into the academic credit allocation method, you know, so you might have to spend a long time on, on sort of legwork that really might just be a footnote in a paper and take several years, you know, and, and I think that's, that's something which I'm keen on pushing forward at the moment is doing more of that stuff. And, Other um, yeah. tricks to doing that well? Yeah, if there are, I'd like to find out about them. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, so much of my experience has become bound up with Uganda that I'm not quite sure what's specific to that context and what are our general methods. I mean, we find again and again team composition, you know, and making sure all teams have a mixture of people from our group who know about the computing and the technological side of things. And then there's, you know, a number of domain experts who are enthusiastic for some reason about that. We've had a lot of success with training people within the university who come from the profession that we're interested in. So I think this is a lot of the success of Ernest's crop project, for example, that we had master students coming in who were agriculturalists and um, do their master's training with our group and then you've got people who know all the practical stuff 
and can help with all the you know extreme complexity of dealing with these things. You know they've they've sort of done that before and managed field trials and and that kind of thing. So I think having the getting the right people on board and letting them figure it out is probably the best tip I've got. But I think that totally that's not that's certainly not Uganda specific. And I think it's something that in the machine learning community we're all too often isolated from for the reasons you mentioned. There's nothing in the academic credit allocation system for that. It's interesting. I don't know. There's a, and there's a push and pull effect. Like, to what extent, one of the things that interests me is if you're going to do data science at the scale that you think it's going to have influence, it cannot be the case that there is a machine learning expert associated with every data set. You know, that just doesn't work. But there is often a domain expert associated with the data set. So one of my thoughts has been on that is that you just push the stuff that we do out to the domain experts more. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it could be that a useful, perhaps what we should be doing mostly is acting as a, a kind of translator unit, taking practical challenges, trying to formulate them in some way where there's like an objective function in a data set and then letting the, letting the world experts... Uh, uh, come up with better stuff than we can, and, and then feeding that back to deployment. Uh, yeah, with large data sets and things working for real, that, that's really interesting in terms of machine learning. And this thing that we've been discussing about in this, this meeting, you know, about uh, the, the subtleties of training and validation and, and testing, when you do stuff for real, we've had some really interesting experiences, for example, with diagnosing crops, where we train stuff, and it seems to be working really well, and we're sure that we've cross-validated carefully, had high-accuracy results on you know, taking images of a leaf with a, a phone and, and it tells us what the disease is. We go to the field and it doesn't work at all and it's a real head-scratcher and, you know, it seems like it might be kind of weather effects or some obscure, like, camera setting on the phone which was different from the data collection trials to the way that we do it and really testing things is a challenge which might not be picked up by the, the usual sort of trained test validation type procedures. I had a good question on that. I mean, it's one of those things that, again, you used to think you understood what test data and validation data wasn't trained. It's just the most simple thing, right? But then someone says, well, you know, there's separation. And if you are deploying, in some sense, the test data doesn't really exist because the test is the deployment. And it's only really an academic thing to think of test data, isn't it? Really, you just build a model and validate it, and then you try and field trial it. Uh, that's a real headache. Right, right. I mean, to, to make progress in academia, you have to kind of make certain assumptions that things are ordered in, in some way, but yeah, life uh, sort of throws extra complexities in the, in the, in the path which are... But you've always bitten off these challenging problems because I think, you know, at the time when you were doing the fetal monitoring, that was also a very difficult problem. I want to actually come back to that area, the medical, and another great project which I think has been using some of the latest deep learning technologies. I mean, one of the things I'm always fascinated about here is actually it mainly seems to be about spatial data. But one way of getting that spatial data is with deep learning. And the malaria identification project, that's a really interesting one. Could you tell us a bit about that? Sure, sure, yes. This is a simple idea of putting to peer down the eyepiece of a microscope and look at whatever a lab technician would look at and try to make the same judgments that they would. Malaria on blood samples is a pretty natural application. Access to diagnosis, quality diagnostics is a really big health challenge. You know, how can you make sure a population is healthy if they can't reliably tell what's you know, what's up? So this is something that, again, has been going on since about, for a few years, about 2010 now we started this. And that's got to the stage now where we have, there's a hardware angle and a software angle. And the hardware is we make these 3D printed smartphone adapters that, that snap onto a microscope and we can slide a phone in and, and take photos. And then, indeed, there's some deep learning which tries to work out where parasites are in a field of view of, of blood cells. And that's at this stage where we've done quite well on our training, testing, validation splits, but then we take it to the clinic and frustratingly it like, really doesn't work. And it's, it's kind of things that we have to just figure out, like, you know, use a different microscope and stuff looks a bit different. You know, we have to deal with a whole type of variation that we couldn't before. So I think really nice offline results with that. And like, so we're looking at speeding this up and making it robust enough that it's ready for clinical trials. You're making me think of there's a sort of maybe an obsession's too strong a word, with adversarial examples at the moment. And, uh, you know, of course, the way you're describing it, that's not adversarial, that's, that's normal that you get people messing with your examples with different microscopes. And the sensitivity of these methods, I mean, they, they do a lot of invariance to very sensible things like rotation invariance, translation invariance through the convolutional structure. But they're very often not invariant to camera type. And obviously microscope type isn't going to be an invariance that's encoded in a neural network. And you get super sensitivities around that, don't you? Because you're relying on the data to force the model to train that. And this is the sort of exactly that type of practical problem that doesn't appear in the papers because 
The paper was all taken on the same set, the test and training, training test data were all on the same subset of cameras or whatever else, but in real. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, cameras has been a huge issue. To start testing, we used these dedicated microscope cameras, which are these basically USB webcams that have good microscope fittings. But they only worked with this proprietorial software, so we had to spend four months reverse engineering the USB protocol to be able to read images out in a, in a platform that we could control. Again, I mean, it doesn't really come into the paper, you know, but it's a lot of work. Um, yeah, so these, these variances, these test time variances that we get are a real conundrum. Yeah, so if it's, for example, if someone uses a different concentration of the staining fluid, then that makes the images look quite different, changes the color balances, and you get blobs of like staining artifact that might appear in some images that maybe doesn't in others. Yeah, the type of microscope, the type of phone. We've got to try to second guess what's going to come up in terms of these variances and maybe like augment data sets or something like that to try to capture the types of variations or, or maybe restrict models in certain ways so that they uh, don't, don't learn things overly specific to our training data collection setup. For and of course the, the issue then is when you deploy one thing that struck me, I mean, there's a lot of impressions I've gained from visiting you and strong memories, and, and one of the things I remember was you saying, well, there's actually quite a lot of microscopes around. There's many health centers with microscopes, and it's this effect that you can donate a microscope. It's a bit harder to donate a trained individual to work with the microscope. Precisely, yeah, that's right. So there seem to be more, there's numbers in the literature, there are apparently more microscopes than there are lab technicians. By a so of one idea is that there you effectively change the work to a less skilled task by augmenting with AI, which I think is a great idea. But of course, the, presumably the staining still has to be done by someone on site. And then you're going to get an unskilled staining situation. So as you deploy, and then you're going to get the same thing again. And you get this constantly evolving data set that you're always chasing with your models. It's, uh... Yeah, so things like staining, I mean, that's an interesting thing to look at. So someone has to prepare the solution, and there are guidelines about the type of uh, water it should be diluted with and the concentration and how long that staining solution can be used. Uh, in, in, in practice, there's quite wide variation, and so we find things like staining solution, which is old or is diluted more than it should, you know, that this changes it a lot, and I, I think that's a good observation, that if it changes to a different type of, like, lab personnel doing it, then that might change even more. I mean, for the foreseeable future, there's still going to be this kind of high expertise task of making the final judgment. Because mm. um, you're at the moment, you're, you're augmenting, you're trying to sort of focus the lab technician's time, make them more efficient, which I think right. is actually what most of us should be doing most of the time, working out how to enhance human scale up the human to have a more interesting job that can be more widely deployed, because we don't have good enough methods to take the human out of the loop very often, I think. Yeah, that's right, and there's all sorts of liability questions, that kind of thing. But I think that's it. Like, so there's a limited supply of laboratory technicians, and if we can make better use of their time, then that's, that's useful. So this is a big issue for the... So for the lab technicians we work with, so Alfred Andama on our team is one of the principal lab technicians in the Malago National Referral Hospital, and he, he has a lot of hands-on experience of this. And the, there are WHO guidelines for how many fields of view in the microscope have to be examined to confirm a negative. So you have to see like 100 or 200, I forget the number. It's a lot. You have to look at each one and do this kind of scan with your eyes, left to right, top to bottom, and look at the whole space and confirm there's no parasite and move on. And this is really demanding on concentration, right? So in practice, they're oversubscribed. There's a, a big queue of blood samples coming in to, to analyze. And what Alfred described is, do, after doing a day of this, I mean, you close your eyes and see malaria parasites everywhere. <laughs> um, you know, it's exhausting. I mean, it's just at the limits of really what, what the human brain can manage. So just something as simple as triaging the portions of the image, you know, look at this bit, these other bits, we're pretty sure there's nothing going on. And then after panning around, particularly if we can improve these models to the extent they can run in real time on video feeds on a phone, then you can pan around the sample I'm waving my hands here, which isn't very much use for a, a, a podcast. No, I'm understanding. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, then at the end of that, you know, here are the things most parasitic, plasmodium-like. It's up to you. You know, make of these, make of these image patches what you will, uh, and then it's over to the lab technician. You're making me think as you speak. Would you have taken this on had you known how much it involved? Oh yeah, I, I regret nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just thinking if someone was thinking. I mean, the great. I love the naivety that we, which we continuously address machine learning problems and say, oh, well, we should just do this. You know, oh, we'll just get a camera and we'll put it on there. And then you don't think of the list. So I'm sort of worrying that there's people now, listeners thinking, oh, right, I should not try anything. 
<laughs> because now I've heard what's really involved. And actually, that's not what you want to happen. So in some sense, or it's a seven-year project, right? But there's been successes, lots of intermediate things along the way, which you can get that academic paper out. So we're sort of you know, complaining a little bit that the academic paper is uh, not recognizing all this work. But at the same time, I think you've published already on this uh, without the live system. So that's a sort of, it's a landmark, isn't it? These things help. Um, yeah, yeah, it's true, it's true. Uh, we've had a number of people who've been quite interested in funding us for various stages of prototypes. So, yeah, sure, I mean, it's, it's completely doable and it's, you know, it's extremely enjoyable finding out these different issues and, and working through them, you know? I mean, that's, uh, that's our, our raison d'etre, right? And I think that, that as a machine learner, it, it, I mean, I don't know, I'm always, maybe I overemphasize it, but I don't think you can. It's the human side. You talk about Alfred and his experience. We've heard Ernest talking about the farmer's experience. You know, and if you forget that, then, then you aren't going to be successful. Not in deploying. Maybe you'll be successful in coming up with some interesting new algorithms that other people will deploy on your behalf. But you're not going to be successful in real-world impact unless you spend that time. But personally, I find that really interesting. It's one of the great things about the job is you can do this diversity of things. You can be in that... UN meeting determining where the typhoid medicine is going and you can learn about Alfred's life in terms of yeah it's real it's a real privilege and I think it's a particular place in time right now you know it's a rising tide you know this is something which just has a feeling of inevitability about it and uh, I'm, I'm sure in the time to come this will be more more specialized it'll be more difficult to kind of float yes. in different domains I think so I think we're in a very we're very very lucky particularly sort of our generation and I think that's absolutely right I mean I mean I think it's something like my mum said to me once how can you be consulting for a Formula One team today and then going to visit Cancer Research UK tomorrow well it's all data mum it's all the same to me of course it isn't the same and the experience is different and the challenges are different but, but they, they map across don't they I mean you, you gain a lot by I think you gain so much by getting involved in these things to inspire what you should look at next, where the, where the real pain points are for people. Yeah, that's right, that's right. I mean, just understanding the, the context, yeah. So what about your future research directions? Is, is it more of the same, or do you see a way of taking this to another level? I know that you're spending more time uh, in Edinburgh at the moment, but also spending a lot of time in uh, UN Global Pulse. Has, has the ambitions changed? or? Um... Well, I think one thing that's been queuing up for a while is the interest of some of the data sets we've been accumulating. Some of these are really substantially rich data sets. For example, human activity, as seen through mobile phone data, you know, it's a way to look at what's going on with a whole population at once, you know, in, in real time. And the scientific possibilities for that are, are fascinating. And we've been concentrating very hard on a number of practical applications of, of that to try to, uh, you know, have something to show for this whole endeavor. But that's been, that's been on my mind. And there's, you know, a few ideas kind of in gestation at the moment about, you know, more, more in-depth uh, theoretical slightly more theoretically flavoured analysis of these, these kind of data sets than has been possible in a, a practical environment. I, I'm the same. I think, right, for me, that leads to, as we've talked about, spatiotemporal data. The analysis of that has always been important, but there's a sort of new class of data now, and, actually, and we don't have the methods, and people aren't working enough on the methods. And there's, uh, you know, almost every single problem we hear about in Data Science Africa at some point becomes a spatial temporal problem. The malaria one, yeah, once you've got the diagnosis, that becomes spatial temporal data or, you know, or Ernest's crop. Yeah, we're using a lot of these AI tools to extract information, which is localized. And then at some point, it does become a spatial temporal challenge. And, and that, that's my own perspective. And I think a similar thing to your saying is you, you're coming it from the data side and I'm coming it from the, oh, John's got all this data. I mean, one thing I'd love to see us do, actually, is start providing exemplar data sets through Data Science Africa for other people to work on so they can get involved in this type of methodology because we need those methods, right, without necessarily having to do all the difficult work. I mean, once we've cleaned everything up, well, you know, and turn it into a train test thing because there are methodologies missing, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right, spatiotemporal, uh, there's, there's definitely some tools missing from that that toolbox at the moment and indeed it doesn't take a very large spatiotemporal data set right now to highlight the, the the difficulties of doing this with current inference methods um so yeah i think that's certainly something something very practical and, and we can provide things from very small data sets to just kind of get things working up to up to data sets which are so substantial that you know even calculating summary statistics is is very difficult without uh, a sort of big server 
and therefore where doing any kind of significant spatiotemporal modeling is very difficult. Yeah, I think there's a number of these, these things. There's also been some really nice developments from African telecoms companies releasing data sets. So there's been some data for development challenges one in Senegal, one in Ivory Coast, where they've released substantial data sets, thought very carefully about how to de-identify and reduce the risk of re-identification, which is obviously very important in this kind of thing. But then that kind of opens up some of this stuff as well. You know, substantial data sets, all sorts of things which are not understood about them, capturing very rich stuff. And there's a few objective functions that kind of can be defined for that. You know, can we predict various things from this substantial data set? And then that's the kind of thing which people elsewhere can, can start chewing on, having had some sort of formalization of the problem, which perhaps is sufficient to, to deal with this in a, in a more abstract way. So that, that's sort of interesting because it sort of challenges for... Um, uh, here's the major challenges for the sort of people on the ground sort of trying to deliver. People like Shira or Dina, who we've spoken to, who are trying to deliver these methods, plus they have complex lives. We've heard from Mike Smith on the, just the challenges of getting your paperwork together, you know, and then they're expected to do a lot of teaching because, of course, we want the next generation to be educated. Yeah, it's difficult to conceive of the... the personal travails that people have to go through, you know, African faculty. So, yeah, juggling family and financial and, you know, workplaces which are chaotic. Uh, I mean, in, in the computing faculty, they would often have, have riots outside the, the, the campus and we'd, we'd get tear gassed in our office, which definitely isn't a conducive work environment. You know, there's all sorts of things which are quite difficult to deal with. And, uh, you know, I just have enormous respect for people who do tough it out and uh, don't just manage to stay on top of the practical problems, but also actually manage to write papers and, and so on. I mean, it's... Uh, I mean, you could also see why it's easy to sort of fall back into something which, you know, UK academics and US academics do in the bucket load. You get in a comfortable position, you've got, once you're there, you don't really push things forward. You just end up in this situation where you're happy taking the salary and you minimize the impingement of these things on your life. I mean, that's US and UK academics do that in the buckets, and that must be a massive temptation for most African academics to, to move out of. Uh, trying to push forward against research barriers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's, it's just, a, you know, it's, a, it's really a shame to think of uh, what, what could have been. You know, there's definitely a lot of people with, you know, bright people with good ideas and a lot of motivation, but uh, the practical challenges are, are insurmountable, you know, and they're really not in a position to, to really uh, do, do what, it, what it takes to, uh, to, to, to get the research done or to test their idea. And I think it's even harder when you look at the way that we're evaluating um, the work that's coming out. Everything you just said, plus a sort of, I mean, a potential a risk of a snobbishness about an unknown institution, um, which uh, can be detrimental to publication work, plus, um, you know, the lack of access to um, people who can demonstrate how you write papers in these particular domains or understand because of travel's hard, you can't fly to all the conferences, you can't understand all the questions that everyone's thinking about. Um, tremendously difficult. Yeah, so, so this, is, this is a nice sort of vision for Data Science Africa that it provides a venue to, to, to do that because, um, you know, sure, uh, like journals in, in, in rich countries which are very focused on, on particular topics have their, have their standards and, uh, you know, why, why shouldn't they? You know, it's, um, I think it's up to this community to come up with their own, their own venues, you know, their own ways of judging what's, what is a worthwhile paper and a worthwhile idea. Um, Judged by your peers, right. not by someone else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that that... So, I mean, the one thing I worry about with this, I, I, I really enjoy it, and I think you're totally right. And, and as you know, one of my concerns is that we build up processes to do this. We're successful, and then we have these processes in place, and then we just create a new amount of administration. And, then, and, everyone, and no one actually does anything. Everyone is slowly moves from actually solving problems to just carrying out the processes, which is a little bit what happens in real... In, in not real, sorry, it's terrible. Uh, which is a little bit what happens, to be absolutely honest, in all the academia I've been in. I mean, like, you know, papers don't become about communication. They become about prestige. Where, where did that come from? I mean, it, it, the process has replaced the means. I, I, this, is, this is my biggest way. One reason I love being here is because it's, it's about the end, isn't it? And, uh, but we do need to put the process in place to make it sustainable. 
That's a great observation, yeah. I mean, we might do another Talking Machines in 10 years and no. feel like that was a disaster, wasn't it? Why, why did we...? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, no, I think what will happen is there'll, there'll be, just, there'll be a, just a president of Data Science Africa who won't actually really know what Data Science is anymore but has an immense amount of power in some sort of thing and, it's a very, and everyone's fighting for that position. That could be like the end result. That would be like my ultimate nightmare. It's not impossible. It's not impossible, is it? It kind of is kind of like 50-50, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, John, it's such a pleasure to speak to you. And for me, there's people, there's people in your life who inspire you. And you're, you're one of the most inspirational people for me. So it's been a great pleasure to get to interview. And it's, it's always a pleasure to work with you. And uh, to, uh, so thank you so much for spending time with us on Talking Machines. Well, that's extremely kind of you, Neil. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks. John Quinn of the United Nations Global Pulse Lab in Kampala and of the Artificial Intelligence Research Group at Makara University. It was so amazing to get to talk to him and, and hear from him, especially after hearing the immense impact that he had on, on the work of all of these other researchers that we also got to talk to. Well, that's it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. Tune in next episode.